Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. We are in our last sermon series of the book, talking about the end. We know this is how Jesus's life is closing up. We are in chapter 26. And so if you have your Bibles, the very thing that I need for my notes is not wanting to work today. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 17. This is Jesus with his disciples. We know that they're in the upper room uh, this is, they're taking Passover together, which we'll talk about in a second. Passover, uh, they're taking it at a different time as well. They're not taking it when normal Israel, when everybody else would be doing it. And I think it's because Jesus knows exactly how the rest of his day is going to go. And so they're taking it at a different time. And there's already a difference in how Israel and how the ancient Jewish culture count days. They start, you know, uh, the new day starts at sundown. And, and we, we have this little mystery thing called midnight, you know, but we don't use when the sun rises or the sun goes down to count days how Israel would. And so sometimes you can get reading in this and you're like, how does this all work chronologically? All I know is this. When Matthew wrote it to the audience that he was writing, it made sense to them. Um, obviously, we are uh, writing, uh, reading this a long time after it was written. A lot of things change culturally, even as how we count days. Made sense to them, and obviously we know that Matthew was full of the Holy Spirit when he wrote. So a lot of times we look at things and think, oh, there's a contradiction there. It's not really a contradiction. We just don't fully understand some of the things, and you'll see one of those in here. So if you'll start with me, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, this is Jesus, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Nice little dinner talk right there, you know, like, hey, did you guys watch the game? How's everybody doing? How's your family? Oh, yeah, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, did I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, 
I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so we start off and we, we hear Matthew writing. He says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, and you're probably thinking, okay, what's unleavened bread? What are we talking about? And this is something I like to geek out on. Uh, anytime you see the TV come up, we're gonna geek out. And the other thing is um, I, I, we get a few requests of saying, hey, could I get those slides that Nick makes or whatever? Absolutely. Uh, instead of bombarding me or Taylor or just whoever, just fill out on a Connect card um, your name and email, and we would absolutely email to you. Uh, we have the real cards, or you could be a digital one and just say, would like the sermon slides from this Sunday. Um, if it's a written card, I know they don't teach handwriting anymore in school. Uh, there's online courses if you guys need, but if we can't read <laughs> your email, we won't be able to send that to you. And so I uh, just wanted to throw that out there. We know that's a request. But uh, the, the first day of unleavened bread was a Jewish festival that they are celebrating. And so I wanted to walk through the seven feasts uh, that the Jews would celebrate. So the first one is Passover. It was in the first month of their year. And again, um, they had a religious calendar and then they had a civil calendar and they didn't match up. And so we'll, we'll look at one of these other festivals that started their calendar, but they're talking about a different calendar. But it was the first month, 14th day. It was a spring festival and it reminded Israel of God's deliverance from Egypt. And if you understand that from the Exodus, when the angel of death passed over because the blood of the lamb was spread on the doorpost, and then the New Testament fulfillment of it is that's when Jesus was crucified, was on Passover. And so there's a greater fulfillment, and we'll see that with all seven feasts. Four of them have been fulfilled already, and we're still waiting on three, and we'll talk about that. Unleavened bread, which Matthew's talking about here as well. It's also the first month, and this is the next seven days, so day 15 to the 21st. Um, it is a spring festival, and it reminded Israel of their deliverance from slavery and their need for holiness in their walk, and it began the day after Passover. So, like, imagine that. Like, you got Christmas, and then the next day you got Thanksgiving for a week, and, like, they're just jam-packing all their holidays together. So, if you remember, when they left Israel, or they left Egypt, Israel, the nation of Israel, God told them, don't we're going to eat this in haste. We're going to, we got to get moving. We don't have time for bread to rise. It needs to be unleavened, meaning no yeast in it. In the Old Testament, yeast was a sign of evil and sin, and so a need for holiness and a walk. Unleavened bread symbolizes the burial of Jesus. He is our unleavened bread. There is no sin in Jesus. He was perfect. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. And so unleavened bread points to Jesus. And then you have first fruits that's on the 16th day. So they're putting a festival within a festival. This one lasted for a week. You get into that. So the next day, another festival, right? Uh, they like to party. God is a party animal. And so you're wondering what heaven's like. Uh, oh, we're just going to sit there like at some old church and sing hymns. No, uh, God's been partying for like a week now already. And this is just a glimpse I think what heaven's gonna be like. A lot of festivals. We meet, we eat. Spring festival. To celebrate God's goodness and God is recognized as the author of the entire harvest which should be dedicated to him. So Jesus is our first fruits. Uh, Paul would say he's the first fruits of those who are asleep. So when he uh, rose from the grave. And so if you will look, 
And they've been celebrating this for almost a 1,000 years when this was instituted in the Old Testament. Jesus dies on Passover. Three days later is first fruits. It's not a coincidence. This is God-designed, and absolutely all this is pointing to who Jesus is. And then we have the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost. It was also a spring festival. That was 50 days after first fruits. So, uh, again, timing is everything. Uh, it was a celebration of the blessing of the completion of harvest. Uh, the key fact is that life would be sustained. And we know, again, that when Jesus rose from the grave, that he appeared to the disciples for 40 days, over a period of 40 days, and multiple times, and then he tells them to go to the upper room and to hang out for a few more days, and the Holy Spirit, in Acts 2, that's when the Holy Spirit was manifested on the day of Pentecost to the disciples. With tongues of fire hit them, and they were speaking known languages. That is key in Acts 2. They were speaking known languages. So it's like if I was speaking right now and all of a sudden started speaking German. People from, because remember, Rome dispersed everybody all around. So they came together for Passover, but they spoke different languages because they grew up because they got dispersed years ago. So they're speaking different languages and people are like, hold on, those disciples are speaking my, like I'm understanding them. It wasn't a babbling, it was known languages. And so that is the Feast of Pentecost. Now the next three we're waiting for, and I love it. Feast of Trumpets, also uh, you might know the term Rosh Hashanah. It's the seventh month, it's a fall festival, and it's a blowing of trumpets that called the people together for a holy assembly. And so anytime God would move, they would always blow trumpets, pull the Israel together, and they would move, especially when they were in the wilderness. And it's marked by a cessation of work, so you're not going to work, and an offering appropriate sacrifices. And that's the present Jewish New Year, different calendar. This, the Feast of Trumpets, is correlated to the rapture when a trumpet will be blown and there will be a gathering of God's people. Waiting on that one. Day of Atonement, seventh month, also a fall festival. Atonement made for all the sins of Israel, a day of complete rest and fasting. Day of Atonement is correlated to the second coming of Jesus. Here's the fun part. Look at the difference of the days. Seventh month, first day, usually was celebrated over two days because they had to recognize either it's the new or the full moon and then... Uh, they had to report it. So they actually would celebrate it over two days. The feast, uh, the day of atonement was on the 10th day. So we have 10 days. The trumpets is going to be two days, right? And then the day of atonement, I can't do a, is one day. How many are in between? Seven. How many years are in between rapture and the second coming of Jesus? Seven years. Israel would call these the days of awe, A-W-E. And those seven days in between were used by Israel of repentance, and it was an opportunity for you to get right with God. Why would we need to get right with God before the Day of Atonement? Because that's when Jesus is returning and fulfilling that festival. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles, again, following the Day of Atonement, that is key, and that is the 15th to the 22nd day, fall festival. And it recalled their deliverance from Egypt and God's provision in the wilderness when they were unable to plant and to harvest. This was an ingathering. It was marked, uh, marking of the harvest of fruit, oil, and wine of praise and rejoicing. Read the Old Testament and see what it says about what it means to be in God's kingdom when he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. It's going to be marked with a plentiful wine. That's why when Jesus turned the water into wine, they thought, ooh, 
Plenty of wine, okay. Plenty of oil. We talked about the presence of oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so a lot of praise and rejoicing. This will be fulfilled in the kingdom, and that's God's desire to tabernacle with mankind. God has always had a heart to tabernacle with his people. The Garden of Eden, he wanted to walk with his people. We screwed that up with sin, and then he had us build a tabernacle so his presence could be with his people. Then we built a temple, and then God sent his son and dwelt among us, is what John 1 says. That word dwelt means tabernacled. God's heart is always to tabernacle with his people, and there is coming a day that Jesus is gonna fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles and that we will be with him in his kingdom and we will be tabernacled together. So these are the feasts that they are talking about. And so uh, I like to throw out there, Scripture says you don't know the day or the hour when Christ is gonna return. He doesn't say anything about the season. Let you stew on that one. That would be fun in life group to talk about. What did he mean by that? And so these are the days. And so Jesus is fulfilling perfectly the Old Testament. And he's following the law. He wasn't outside of the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And so if the law required and they were going to do feasts and festivals and this is what it meant to keep the law, Jesus absolutely did that. Even knowing that this was a, he was fulfilling that the fullness of what these festivals meant was him, he still kept it. And so the disciples, hey, it's Passover. When are we going to, what are we doing here? And he's like, you're going to go. You're going to see a certain man. Uh, we know that he's carrying a jug of water. And just let him know, hey, the, the Lord, the teacher, has use of your place. Uh, some commentators kind of wonder. Uh, John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark that is Peter's accounts of the Gospels, some people believe that's him. Because it would be a very atypical for a man to carry water in this culture. That was a woman's responsibility. Remember John 4, woman at the well. And so for them to walk into a city and see a man carrying water, I think personally, this is, uh, don't, don't live or die by this, I think this is just how Jesus is talking in code. Because again, his arrest, his death has to be at a precise time. And so he's just talking in code to the disciples. Hey, you're gonna go into town, you're gonna see a guy carrying water. What he didn't say was, hey, that's John Mark's dad. Because it was. In Acts 12, 2, we know John Mark's dad used his house frequently for the disciples and for the early church to meet together. And so I think even here, but I think it's just talking in code. So they go, they set up Passover, which we talked about. Um, it would be slightly different than what we would talk through in a Seder Passover meal that uh, Jewish people celebrate today. But this is where their roots were at. And we will talk about that a little bit later in the sermon. And so as they're eating... He says that hard statement. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they go around the table and they're looking at Jesus and saying, is it I? And there's a little bit of hope in that because I think if that happened today, most of us wouldn't look at Jesus and say, is it, is it I? We'd be like, Jesus, I know who it is. And let me, I'll tell you all about this person. They, if anybody's gonna betray you, it's that dirty, rotten scoundrel right across the table. When Jesus hits us with really hard words, just like he did the disciples here, as we're walking through this on our own and we're hit, don't look at this, I say this a lot, don't use this as binoculars to look at somebody else. Like, oh, that verse, oh man, JJ really needs to read that. He's just such a sinner. 
He needs to get right. He needs to know what that is. No, no, no. When we're hit with really hard truth, don't look around. Look within. And just like the disciples, is it I? Is this me? Are you speaking to me? And so I, I love that comfort that their immediate response wasn't pointing fingers, which we're really good at, right? I didn't even have to teach my kids that. They, they learned it all on their own. They're fighting, and I'm trying to settle like a Moses with, you know, uh, trials, and we have key witnesses. We got evidence. Like, it is a whole shebang of a deal. And, and every time somebody's wronged, they're completely innocent. It wasn't me, Dad. It's the other sibling that you brought into this world. Half of the problem's you. You should never have brought them into this world. We were perfectly fine with only two of us. You ruined this beautiful thing that we had by bringing the sinners in the camp, you know? And so we're really quick to point fingers at everybody else and say, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's not my fault, it's theirs, it's the teacher, it's my boss, it's my coworkers, everybody's an idiot, and da-da-da-da. The Word of God is a mirror to our lives. And so we're, when we're reading it, let me just answer the question for you. Asking Jesus, is it I? Yes. Yes, it is. It is you. When the Word of God speaks to our heart, it is for us. And so in the response, Jesus says, it's he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Uh, some people think that Jesus was going over here, a little chip and dip, you know, a little chips and queso type of moment, and it was him at, and Judas at the same time, right? Which, that's very typical in my house. Like, we don't wait for other people to, like, if there's one common dip, like, multiple hands are going in it. That's not what happened. It wasn't like both of their hands were in the cookie jar. In this culture, to break bread with somebody was of like high respect. And you were almost, that's how we read through the Old Testament. That's how they would signify covenants with one another. So like if you had this kingdom and this kingdom and you wanted a truce or you wanted a covenant that you weren't gonna attack each other, give your men to their women and their women to your men, you would, you would seal that covenant with a meal. That meal is fellowship. That meal is saying that you are friendship. So in this culture, breaking bread, it was entering into a pact of friendship and mutual trust, right? So hold your finger here in Matthew. Go to Psalms, Psalm 41. So what Jesus is saying is he's not identifying one disciple. He's saying, who's gonna betray me? It's not the Pharisees. It's not somebody outside of our circle. It's somebody that I've dipped my hand in bread with. It's somebody that we've had a pact of friendship in a fellowship that we've had a, a covenant together. And so Psalm 41 verse nine says, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Go back to Genesis. Is that not what God told? That he will strike your heel but you will strike his head? That Satan is gonna indwell Judas very soon and kind of cause a heel wound to Jesus. And then you go fast forward to the cross when you're hanging on the cross like that and you had, they would stack your feet and drive a nail right through it and you would dig your heel in the side of that, backside of that cross to lift yourself up because how you died was your own body weight. You would asphyxiate on your own body weight. You would have to pull yourself up, catch a breath before you would fall down because you couldn't breathe this way. And they would just wait until your muscles gave out and you, your breaths get lower 
and lower and lower until you're fatigued of your muscles won't allow you to breathe anymore. And it is recorded that people's heels would be clear to the bone of just trying to catch another breath. That's how our God died on the cross for us. And to hurry the process, they would do a death blow. That's where the spear in the side for Jesus, breaking the legs of the two on the side of him. Sometimes they would even just crush your head. And if they were feeling real sporty, they would just light you on fire and let you burn on the cross. That's why it's excruciating. That word was almost invented as we talk about the cross. And so Jesus is saying, it is a friend that's gonna cause a heel blow to me. It is a friend that is gonna betray me, that we've dipped and ate and broke bread together. And he says, if he had not been born, one commentator, I read this and I just, it hit me. If you have never been born again, one day you will wish you had not been born at all. Jesus is looking at the person that's gonna betray him and say, it's better for you if you would have never been born, but woe to the man that betrays the son of God. And Judas looks at him. Every other disciple is asking out of curiosity. They're asking out of, I don't know. Is it I, Lord, but Judas, who we already know, went to the religious leaders, go back up to verse 14. Hey, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? 30 pieces of silver from that moment. He sought an opportunity to betray him. Fast forward to dinner, maybe the next night, Around the table, one of you will betray me. And the audacity of Judas to look at Jesus, knowing what he did, is it I, Lord? Anybody have kids? Walk into a very messy room, whatever. Who did this? Not me. Was it I, Lord? You pick the kid up and you throw him right outside, right? Yes, it was you. And Jesus looks at Judas and says, you have said so. Because Judas already decided in his heart what he was going to do. You have said so. And he says this, not in condemnation. It is you, Judas. And here's an opportunity for repentance. But we know at some point, probably right here in the meal, uh, after the meal, Judas leaves. Someone, you know, there was that whole foot washing scene that John talks about. Was that Judas? Was he a part of that or not? We know before communion, Judas leaves. Just to say this, we talked, I think, last week or the week before, we all have a next step. That's what discipleship is, taking our next step of obedience. Better, we all are going to take another step in our life. Are we stepping towards Jesus, or are we walking away like Judas? If your next step puts more distance between you and Jesus, that's not your next best step. That whatever it is, if there is something that is pulling you away from Jesus, it's almost like we're putting our lots with Judas. That there is something better out there and I'm gonna walk away from Jesus. And so Judas leaves at this point and then Jesus starts, they're, they're still in this Passover meal that we're gonna talk about. And so as they were eating, Jesus takes the bread he blesses it, and he breaks it. Well, what bread, you know? And this is where he institutes communion, not John 6. That was something different. I know he talks about if you eat my flesh, drink my blood. That's not what he's talking about. But here is where Jesus institutes communion. 
In communion for us, this is how we remember and we fellowship with Jesus. That's why we take communion. And again, we, you could take it every Sunday. Some of you came from a church that did that. We take it once a month. I've been in churches where we take it once a quarter. There, there's no right or wrong. Jesus, Paul says, as often as you do this, Paul records this in Corinthians, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I even had one person say, hey, I'm gonna be here for two services. Do I take it twice? I do, as often as we do it. If you wanna hang out for another service, hear the whole sermon again and take communion again, rock on. Nothing wrong with that. And so this is how we remember and fellowship with Jesus. But he took bread. And this just wasn't like Lambert's rolls that they're chucking at each other. Um, I don't know if any of you remember Ryan's steak, like Ryan's buffet. Yeah, everything else was horrible except the rolls. The rolls and the sweet tea, right? That was salvation right there. It was manna in a little basket, and it was warm and buttery. And so it's not just bread at the table. They're, they're, they're eating this very symbolic meal. And it wasn't even maybe a choice of what we want. It wasn't like the disciples are like, hey, it's taco night, Jesus. We'll do that for Passover. No, it was a very symbolic meal that they're eating, and he takes bread. And so earlier in the Passover meal, uh, and this is kind of some uh, later interpretations of possibly of what Jesus is going through, but we know in a Seder Passover meal, there's three pieces of unleavened bread. So this has no leaven in it, no yeast. It's probably a cracker, right? Big old cracker. You can actually buy these at the store. Um, it's called matzah. It was, it's a thin little cracker. It is pierced. It is striped. Wonder why that would be. And sometime earlier in the Jewish meal of Passover, they break, uh, and there's three pieces. That's another key thing. There's three pieces of this bread. And the second one is called the afekomen, right? And they'll take this piece, they'll break it in half, they will use the smaller piece of the two for the rest of the meal throughout it. But they take the bigger piece of this second piece of bread, they're gonna wrap it in linen, and they're gonna hide it away for later in the meal. Anybody catching the symbolism here? The second piece of the bread, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're gonna break it. It's already pierced and striped, but now we're gonna break it. We're gonna wrap the bigger piece in linen and hide it away for uh, at the end of the meal. And then we're gonna use the smaller piece for the rest of the meal. So when they get to the end of the meal, which is where we're at with Jesus in this meal here, he takes bread. And so in a common or more modern Seder, uh, it's actually a game that they play with the kids. At this point after the meal, hey, it's time to find the Afe Komen. So it's a little hide and seek. They, the kids are running through the house trying to find where this bigger piece wrapped in linen bread is. And normally the kid that finds it gets like a piece of candy or something cool like that. They bring it back and everybody breaks off a piece and they eat it. And so even the, this Passover meal that Jesus and the disciples are having, they know at the end of the meal, they're all gonna take a piece of bread. That was a very common thing. And so they're all breaking this piece of bread off. They all get a piece and he says, yeah, take and eat. But then when he says, this is my body, I think every face at the table would have looked up. That's not normally what you say at this part of the meal because there were certain things that you said at each part. And all of a sudden now Jesus says something totally different. This piece of bread with no leaven that is pierced and striped, that is broken, that we all are gonna take. Yeah, this is my body. Take and eat. And so just like the, the, the whole festival of Passover, any of them, how there's a full understanding 
full revelation of what it meant. Even the elements in the Seder, the Passover meal, are pointing to Jesus. This is my body, pierced, striped, broken for you. Take and eat. Remember that every time, and it's Communion Sunday, I did not plan that. We've been in Matthew for what? The whole time I've been here. I didn't fast forward a year and a half and be like, oh yeah, communion's gonna land exactly where we're gonna be at in the book of Matthew. God just loves to show up. But at the end of service, we're gonna take bread that is broken for you and we are gonna eat it and we're gonna remember the body of Jesus that was pierced, that was striped, that was broken for you, for me. And then he takes this cup and he's saying this, drink of it, all of you, and that would have been a normal thing in a Passover. There's actually four cups, and so a little more geek out here, right? Don't want to love the geek out. There's four cups in Passover. The first one is called the Kadesh, and you recite the Kiddush. It's a prayer, a ceremony of prayer and blessing over wine. Some would call that first cup the cup of blessing, and that starts the Passover meal, right? And then some point, they're gonna go to the second cup of the Passover called the Megid, and they tell the story of the Exodus because that's what the Passover meal was all about. So they're always reminding themselves, why are we taking Passover? Because of the Exodus. That's why Exodus, I think, is one of the uh, pinnacle books of the Old Testament. Everything is based on that. That if we can understand Israel's deliverance out of Egypt, a whole lot of our faith is on that. And apologetically, too, to defend, did that event really happen? There's a lot of sweet evidence for it. We can talk later about it. But that is called the cup of praise. We are praising that God delivered Israel out of Egypt. And then you get to the third cup. You get to the cup here that Jesus just picked up and said, drink it, all of you. And this is called the barak. And that is grace after the meal. This is called the cup of redemption. Why in the world would Jesus pick up the cup of redemption and want everybody to drink it? Why is it that cup that he's gonna bring a greater fulfillment to? Because it's his blood that brings redemption for us. And so Jesus, this cup on the Passover is the blood of Jesus, a new covenant. That's a weird word that we use thinking if you're married, you're in a covenant with one another. But when God, when we're in a covenant with God, that's something that God sets up. We can't come to God and be like, hey, I got a new idea for a covenant. You know, like, okay, the land, you know, for, uh, and the seed and the blessing with Abraham, that's a cool covenant. Then you have the Davidic covenant. I got a new covenant idea. No. The thought of a covenant is something that God sets up with his people. And so for Jesus to take this cup and say, this is my blood poured out for you, and it's a new covenant. He's declaring his divinity, that 100% human, that this is my blood and 100% God, which is a covenant with you, that God, again, wants to close in the gap that we have with him, that we're not running after God. I've seen some of you run. God's running after us. God is pursuing us. God is setting up covenants to be with us. Us. And so this cup, a new covenant, something only God can set up, is Jesus' blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And we know in Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of uh, bulls and goats, it doesn't take away sin. 
It covers it, but you have to do it year after year after year. But the blood of Jesus, once for all, takes away the sin of the world. And is that not what they said of Jesus when they saw him early in his ministry? There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not just believers. That Jesus had to die, had to be punished at the another cup we're going to talk about, cup of wrath, poured out on Jesus for the sins of the world, meaning that there are people that do not put their faith and their trust in Jesus, but Jesus still died for their sins. Some people try to go with universalism. Oh, so then we're all saved. No, no, no. By faith. But sin has to be punished. The sin of the world has to be punished. That's why John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Not just who's gonna believe in him. Not this little special group of people that are gonna come to Jesus in faith. No, for God so loved the world that he's gonna pay for the sin of the whole world, but salvation's gonna be offered to those that trust in Jesus because we're saved by grace through faith. And so this cup, and he takes it and they all drink. So again, at the same time, they this complete shift of what the bread is, and then there's this cup, and this is my blood that's gonna be poured out for you. And if you will study what a crucifixion looked like, it was the bloodiest thing ever. I mean, just the beatings that Jesus or any person would take before, you know, when they had those whips, like some of the ends of the whips were bone and of metal, and the other pieces were like uh, big old fishing weights, big old ball bearing type things so that when that hit you, it would break and, and cause contusions and bruising. And then the metal, you know, sometimes we think of it like a whip where they're just whipping and it's just slapping off of the flesh of Jesus. No, not at all. Those pieces of bone and metal, they would snap it, and you get a little wrist snap to it, and it would catch right into the flesh. And then you needed the strength to rip it out of his flesh. There's accounts, historical accounts of other people being crucified that they wouldn't even make it to the cross because of the beating they took, their organs would fall out of their body cavity. That they wouldn't even make it to the cross. For me, I think it's a sheer miracle and act of God that Jesus did. He was absolutely unrecognizable as a man. And every drop had to be poured out for the sins of the world, that this isn't symbolism that Jesus is talking about, like, oh yeah, my body and my blood broken. No, 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 it's literally going to happen for you and for me. But then Jesus references the fourth cup. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day. What day? that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the fourth cup in a Passover meal was called the Hallel, which means praise. And they would ring, read Psalms, and that was called the cup of the kingdom. So Jesus will not drink that cup again. We drink it. We do this in remembrance of him, but he's not drinking it. There is one more meal that we will have with Jesus in his kingdom the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we are invited to one more dinner, that we will not take communion forever and for eternity. We do that on this side. But once we are with him in his, in his kingdom, 
new heaven, new earth, and I drink it with you a new in my Father's kingdom. There's no more communion because we are with Jesus. And so this fourth cup of the Hillel, he says, we're not going to drink the fourth cup. We're not going to end a Passover meal because that's, that's for the kingdom. So even for us today, we're still in the waiting to drink that fourth cup. We're still in the middle of this Passover meal. We've drank the cup of redemption. I hope you have by faith and putting your trust in Jesus. You've drank that cup of redemption, but we are now in waiting for that last cup. And we take communion to remember Jesus and we look forward to the cup of the kingdom.